Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning, and Miss Kim is ready uh, to, to help our little ones for Children's Church. Uh, and so if they, you have one that wants to go, now is the time. And while they're making their way out, let me ask you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is where we'll find ourselves uh, this morning in the 16th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we'll be looking at the first four verses there. Let me say a word of thank you uh, to many of you who volunteered on Friday uh, to help serve our first responders over with Northside. Some of you uh, also were able to make goodies and sweets for that. We were able to partner with many of our other churches in town and, and feed all of our first responders around, and they sent food in every direction and, and fed many of our uh, paramedics and volunteer fire departments and fire departments and sheriff's department and police department. And so uh, thank you to the church for being a part of that. And, and here's the great thing about being a part of a church. If you didn't bake a thing and you didn't show up, you still get credit because you're part of the church here, right? So, so you can just brag and hold your head high. Uh, that's part of being in the family of God. Now, last Sunday, we began a two-part series, and so today is part two. We're finishing that, uh, and just by way of advertisement, beginning next Sunday, we're going to start a six-week series moving into Easter, looking at all of the places in the Gospel of John where Jesus refers to himself as I am. He says, I am the bread of life, I am the shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's going to be a great time to just to stare at Jesus again. And so I want to encourage you to be with us uh, during that time. But for today, we're finishing our two-part series entitled Money Matters. Money Matters. And last week, I gave you part one, which was the warning. I gave you the warning that Paul tells Timothy, uh, don't let the love of money uh, be after you. The love of money is the root of evil. It causes a struggle. Don't, don't go after the things of this world. You must guard against it, that it can become idolatry, the things of this life, the, the treasures of this world. If we're not careful, uh, we can put it ahead of our pursuit of God. And so last week we looked at the warning. Well, this week I want you to see a word of wisdom. I want to help you. If I were to say to you that the warning is, don't let money become your God, then what's the first step? What's the first word of wisdom? How do you get started in guarding against that? How do you get started in keeping that uh, from becoming your priority? Now, before we dive into this, let me just make a couple of statements concerning money and preaching. Uh, the first statement is this when we talk about money, especially from the Scripture, we need to understand that the Lord is not necessarily worried about your bank account, your bottom line, or your wallet. The Lord is worried about your heart. Money issues, just like all the other issues in our life, have to do with our heart. Where are we in obeying and following the Lord with our heart? You remember when you go to the doctor... And you tell the doctor, doctor, this hurts. And the doctor begins to poke and prod and move until they find the spot that you've already warned him hurts, but he's going to touch it anyway. Because that's what they teach them in middle school school, make you scream right off the bat, right? Am I right? That's what they teach you. And so they find the spot that hurts and they poke it and you howl. Woo! That's the spot. Well, this morning, as we walk through this text, here's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that the great physician would show us areas in our life where when it comes to finances, we're not being obedient. And we might howl a little. We might find a place where God can work on us and grow us and stretch us. So I want you to know that first and foremost, this is a heart issue. Secondly, I want you to see this morning as we walk through this text that the priority of the Christians should be to give through the local church. 
that the local church is described in Scripture as the place in which we should begin our giving, that that's the place. Now, for those of you that are visiting with us, your guest of ours, you stumbled into a money sermon. And so let me just be very clear and upfront with you. Elkdale Baptist Church is actually in a very financial, stable place. We have wonderful members who are giving faithfully, and we're not in debt. We have money to do all the ministries we've budgeted to do, and so we're not in any kind of capital campaign. And so I'm not preaching this because I'm looking at a bottom line that's struggling. I just want you to know up front, I think it's biblical that you give through the local Church. Number three, let me make this statement, and that's simply this. God is concerned about how you view money. He's concerned about it. In fact, if you were to survey the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you'll find that he spoke more about money than he did heaven or hell combined. That he put that topic in the center. Why? Because he knew there wouldn't be a day go by that that topic is not on our mind. It's not something, we, we, we talk about it in every direction possible. And so he's making sure that we have a right view of Money, And then finally, let me make this final statement. I made this one to you last week, but I want to make it to you again so that you understand very clearly what's happening today. I want you to know something. I love you. I love you. I love being your pastor. I love being a part of this community. And I want more than anything for you to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and in every area of your life, him say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I would be a fool if I did not help you biblically understand that that includes how you view the treasures of this world, how you view money, how you view material things, that this is not something that God is suddenly going to overlook when we stand before his throne. So this morning, I want to give you a word of wisdom on how you begin to fight idolatry. Look with me in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth these words, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as it may prosper, as you may prosper, excuse me, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Let's ask the Lord for help this morning. Father, we want to hear from your word and we want it to apply to our life. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom as we walk through this text. And Father, we want to give our lives over to you in every area. And so, Lord, teach us today. Teach us that that we cannot carve out certain parts of our life and act as though you don't want to be Lord of that. You are Lord over all things, including how we view money. And so I pray this morning that that this time together would be good instruction for our heart and for our obedience to you. And we thank you, Father, that every good gift comes from you, that you have blessed us richly. And Lord, we pray now for wisdom, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you were to read the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to them and he's walking them through uh, uh, several topics throughout the whole letter. In fact, his main theme of the letter of 1 Corinthians is that the church would have unity. And so he's writing to them about all the issues that he's heard that they're dealing with. And so if you survey the book, you're going to find that they have issues with how to do corporate worship. And they have issues with marital relationships. And they have issues with witnessing. And they have issues with theology. And they have issues with doctrine. And they have issues with unity. And in chapter 16, he says, and now I need to talk to you about money. I need to deal with this. And and the interesting thing about it to me is when you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that this is one of the most dysfunctional churches in all of church history. 
that they are, I mean, anytime you guys get me discouraged because you're all nuts, I stop and read. That was a joke, by the way. I'm, I'm totally kidding. I stop and read 1 Corinthians and remind myself, man, it could be worse. It could be totally worse. I mean, this church was struggling. But the great thing about our Lord is, is he leaves no topic uncovered in our life. He wants us to be blessed and to follow his way. And so he writes this letter and every chapter he deals with an issue that every believer needs to be wise in. And in chapter 16, he's specifically dealing with how we approach giving, how we should approach giving. And I would say to you that he's going to give us a couple of truths. In fact, there are two main ideas I want you to get from the text this morning. Words of wisdom on how you can begin a life that is giving and not greedy, if you will. So truth number one, here's what I want to give you. I say that Paul gives us the case for giving to the local church. He makes the case that we should start by giving to the local church, that that's the place where we fight the idolatry of money first by giving to the local church. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Now look down at verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, he's going to make the case that we should give through the local church. In fact, he says, I'm asking you guys to bring it in. In verse 2, he says, the first day of the week, gather it up, collect it, and bring it into the church house so that we can use it for the other churches. And he even says, and I've told the church at Galatia to do that, and I'm telling the churches around to do that so that we can use this money for Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's making the case that the giving should be done on a regular basis through and to the local church. Now, let me show you how I can make this even stronger. Look with me there at verse 1. Notice the word that he uses. He says, to the saints of Galatia, I told them, and I tell you as well. Now, notice the term that he uses there. He calls them saints. The word saint there is the definition of one who follows Christ. They've been sanctified. They've been set apart. He says, I am writing to you believers. Now, let us sit here for just a moment because I don't want you to miss this. Listen carefully. Paul's instructions from here on out on giving and tithing and offering are to the Christian. They are to the believer. He is instructing the one who's come to Christ. Notice now, he does not say give so you'll become a saint. He says because you are a saint, you should be giving. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to be a saint? Well, take your Bibles right there and flip back to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, we have the definition of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. There it is, brothers and sisters. There is the gospel, the first priority. The first priority is to come to Jesus Christ, to know that the Lord God sent his one and only son to bear the sins of the world, to bear the curse of the world, to be uh, crucified on a cross, to be buried in the tomb, and to resurrect on the third day so that all who come to Christ might be saved. Listen to me now. You want to know how to be a saint? You want to know how to be saved? You want to know how to make heaven your home and death not be your enemy anymore? You must come to Jesus Christ, for he and he alone makes you a saint. It is not the check you write into the offering plate. It is the fact that Christ has done it for you. And so Paul begins his lesson on giving by taking them back to their title. You are saints. I am so thankful. 
that I am not saved proportionally based on what I give to the church. I am thankful that I am saved because Christ gave it all. The gospel calls us saints. But I want you to see something even more special about this. You see, I believe he makes the case uh, for giving through the local church because it's a testimony of our faith that we're Christians, we're different, we're there. But notice with me verse 15, chapter 15. Just look in your Bible. Your English Bible probably puts headings above the chapters. The first part of the heading will say something about the resurrection of Christ. And it talks about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And then long down about verse 15, or excuse me, down about verse 20, it'll talk about the resurrection of the dead. And that one day all of us are going to be resurrected. That we're all going to come out of the tomb. That we're all going to go into glory. And then if you get over to the end of chapter 15, he talks about the day where God's going to bring us all home into heaven. Now get this, in chapter 15, we have the theological pinnacle of our faith. We climb the mountain of the highest thoughts of our faith. What is the essence of our faith? The essence of our faith is Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the grave and all who trust in him will one day, though they die, be resurrected from the grave and gather with him up into heaven. The very height of our theology, our doctrine, the loftiest thoughts we can have is that one day Jesus is going to take us to heaven. Amen? Now think about this for a moment. Paul spends all of chapter 15 in this highfalutin, pinnacle, mountain of theology. And in the same letter, in the same breath, in chapter 16, he says, now let me tell you about giving. Now, now don't miss the connection. Paul is not only concerned about the future and glory, he's concerned about you here and now. And he connects them together by saying, if you're a saint of God and you are bound for glory, then the behavior should change for even now. So he connects them together. He says, yes, God is worried about your eternal security and your destination in heaven. But he's also worried about your behavior tomorrow. God, when he becomes the Lord of our life, invades every part of it. And he's not just concerned about you getting into heaven. He's concerned about you walking with him in every area of your life. And so, brothers and sisters, giving starts as a testimony of faith that the Lord has made us saints. That he has saved us. But there's a second reason why you should give through the local church. Not only is it a testimony of your faith in Christ, but it's a testimony of unity. Look at verse 3 and 4 again, remind you of what Paul says. He says, now, we're going to collect this offering, and then you're going to write a letter, church, and you're going to give the authority to some of the people to deliver this offering. And then in verse 4, he says, if it's advisable to you, I'll go with you. Do you know what that looks like to me? That looks like accountability and unity. That looks like a group of people who have decided together we need to do something, we need to give, we need to have accountability with one another, we need to gather this up for the greater good of the kingdom work. Alone, my offering, my money can do some things, but together we can collectively now stand in unity for the kingdom. And the world will see a community that is different in their wallets. There is unity in giving. In fact, if you'll notice in the text, it says we're going to gather this up and send it to Jerusalem. I've told the churches at Galatia to do this. I'm telling the church at Corinth to do this. I want to gather these things up and I want them to go on with them. Do you realize what Paul is doing? Paul is looking at these feeble believers in Corinth. He's looking at the feeble believers in Galatia. And he's saying, listen now, when you gather up your offering and we put all of these together and we send them to Jerusalem, we are declaring that the body of Christ is not this ragtag bunch of outposts, but it is one glorious, great, unified body and Christ is our head. 
It is a universal body spread all over the world. So when you give to the local church, you are saying to one another, I'm with you in the kingdom. And when we send that money to the missionary and to the feeding house and to the one across the world and across the street, we are declaring with other believers, we are in this together. It is a picture of unity. Paul says, I make the case for you to give through the local church because it declares that you are a saint of God and he has changed you. That you are marching for the promised land and you're behaving different in this land. And then secondly, because it builds unity in the church. It builds a picture of a family that's striving together, that's working together, that's doing it together. So I I believe that verses 1 and 3 and 4 make the case that we should give through the local church. That should be the priority of your giving. Now I want you to focus with me on chapter 2. And depending on how you break it up, you can see three or four commands here. And they're very practical steps of how you should give. And so I want you to see, secondly, the commands for giving to the local church. I want you to see the commands that he makes. He, he makes some very clear instructions in, chapter, in verse 2. In fact, when we read verse 2, there are going to be very clear commands that you're going to have to answer in your own spirit between you and the Lord. Am I obeying the Scripture? Am I doing what the Bible says? The book of James tells us, uh, Jesus' half-brother writes in the book of James, for a man to do, for know what is right is in his heart, and not to do it to him it is a sin. And so as we read verse 2, I want you to allow the Spirit to examine your life and ask the question, am I obeying God in the area of giving? You see, I believe wisdom starts in being a cheerful giver. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 2 as he gives us a couple of lessons on giving. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now he gives us this command, and there's a couple of lessons here. So we're going to look at these together. The first lesson is simply this. Our giving should be priority. Our giving to the local church should be a priority. In fact, I would even add another word and say it should be a persistent priority. Look at what I mean. Look at the very first words of chapter of verse 2. On the first day, every week. Now, he's making this idea that it should be the first thing that you do. Now, he's living in a society that was a cash-based, trade-based society. You worked a couple of hours, you got paid immediately. You swapped a chicken, you swapped some corn, you did things in that, in that society. But you were paid on a regular weekly basis for your wages. In fact, we would learn from the Old Testament, we don't let the sun go down if we owed wages. And so you were paid for your work on the day. And so he's making the argument that as you are paid on a regular basis, day by day, week by week, that the first thing you should do on the first day of the week is set aside what you are to give to the Lord. Now, why would he say the first day of the week? Because again, brothers and sisters, go back with me to chapter 15. He's connecting it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying that the church gathers for worship on the first day of the week, which means we bring our offering on the first day of the week because we are declaring that we are saints of God, all our provisions are from God, that he has given us generously through the blood of his son, and we return a portion back to him for worship, for honoring him. It should be a priority. You should carve it out. You should set it aside. It should not take uh, leftovers or last things. Many of us don't make giving a priority because we wait to see if we have enough at the end of the week. Many of us don't make it a priority because we don't budget or plan. Many of us don't make it a priority because we're not simply in church regular enough to give our offering. We don't make it a priority. And verse 2 of chapter 16 says, every week, make it a priority. Now, let us stop there for just a moment before you think I'm being dogmatic because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The pastor gets paid every two weeks. 
which means he doesn't tithe every week. He tithes every two weeks. And so before you think I'm in disobedience and I'm rebelling from Scripture, let's remind ourselves that Paul is not necessarily pointing out that you must give weekly. He's working with the economy of the day where they're paid on a daily basis, and he's saying make it a point to bring it into the storehouse. But he is showing a systematic pattern of giving, not a sporadic, spasmatic pattern of giving. A systematic pattern of giving, of carving it out first before you pay anything else with that income, making it the priority of your week. Why can't you give regularly? I'm going to help us here. I I told you this is a sermon of wisdom, so I'm going to give you some wisdom. Here's why people cannot give regularly to the church. The first reason is their lifestyle. The average American lives on 103% of their income. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you know much about math, but 103% is 3% more than you make. And so you can't give regularly because you spend more than you make. You're bringing in more than you make. In fact, some of you have sat in my office for counseling and you've said, Pastor, I want to give more. I wish I could give more. I just can't seem to fit it into the budget. And you know what? I believe you. I believe you're sincere and I believe your heart is in the right place, but I believe unfortunately your priorities are not. Because the first thing that I would say or ask would be simply this, what do you write first? Do you write the hunting club dues? Do you write the private school dues? Do you write the baseball dues? Do you write the new shoes dues, the haircut dues, the eating out dues, the car payment, the other car payment, the third car payment dues? Or do you give to the church first? You see, brothers and sisters, I don't think it's a wallet issue. I think it's a priority issue. It's a priority issue. We live on more than we should. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this to make my point, and simply this. The average American carries $38,000 of non-mortgage debt. Take your house out of the equation. The average American has at least $38,000 in personal debt to some form or fashion. In fact, there are only about 27% of Americans that are actually debt-free. And if you have a credit card, you're most likely to carry about $10,000 of debt on a credit card. Brothers and sisters, one reason why we can't give is because we become slaves to this world. And this is wrong. Let me give you one more example just to make it soberingly true. The average car payment, the average car payment is financed for 69 months. That's about five and three quarters years. Five and three quarter years to pay off a car. Doesn't sound too bad. Unfortunately, here's the statistic that'll kill you. The average American keeps their car only six years. We're constantly buying, upgrading, paying, moving on to the next gadget, the next thing, the next mortgage, the next bedroom, the next project, the next club, the next car, and we never think to ourselves the priority ought to be give to the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why you can't give is your lifestyle. Another reason why you can't give regularly is you don't see it all as God's. I would give, Lord, but I've got all these other things on my list. And the Lord would simply say to you, I have all the cattle on the hill. I've blessed you with what you have. Be good stewards. You don't see God first. You see him getting the leftovers. And probably more practical, you don't give because you don't have a budget. Now, the second command that he gives us here is not only should our giving be a priority, uh, excuse me, should be a priority, it should also be personal. Look at what he says here. He says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. He says each of you. It is to be a personal thing. It is to be every believer. Now notice, he doesn't say on the first day of every month, the rich people ought to put something in. He doesn't say on the first day of every month, the the husband ought to put something in. The wife ought to put something in. The teenager's off the hook. His grass-cutting money don't count. That's not what he says. He says on the first day of every week, make it a priority that each of you give 
something. It should be a personal thing. Now, think about it this way. If I were to counsel you in your spiritual walk and I say, brother, you know what? I'm reading the Bible in my quiet time every day. You're off the hook. You don't have to read your Bible every day. You would think that'd be foolish. If I were to say to you, you know what? Uh, Sister Susie, she's really good at praying every day. We're going to let her take the praying. None of us will pray every day. That would be silly. Well, brothers and sisters, that's the same thing when it comes to our finances. If I say, well, they'll take care of the giving, I don't need to give every day. I'm simply in disobedience, just like I would be if I'm not reading the Word or praying. He says, each of you are to give. There's no healthier spiritual discipline than to regularly give to the local church. But we don't do it. In fact, only about 5% of Americans give 10% of their, of their income to the local church. 80% of professing Christians give less than 2% to the local church. We're not giving. We're not giving like we should. In fact, the average Protestant Christian gives about $17 a week to the local church. That adds up to $884 in a year. If you're giving 10%, that means you're making $8,000 a year as your salary. I beg to differ that we're making more than that. Brothers and sisters, I don't sell you these things to make you feel guilty. I'm telling you we've got a problem. It's become idolatry. It's become disobedient. It's become selfish. It's become sad. In fact, why should all believers give? Because we all need to fight covetousness. We all need to fight idolatry. We all need to make sure we're not in the crisis of the cycle of thinking that we need to give more. We all need to attest to our faith. Adrian Rogers, the great Baptist preacher, put it this way. He says simply this, a faith that hasn't reached your wallet probably hasn't reached your heart. I mean, if you want me to know the priorities of your life, what do I look at? I look at your calendar and your wallet. I see where you go and where you spend your money, and you can do the same with me, and that's going to show us where our heart is, where our treasure is. And so he simply says, make it personal. Let me give you a third command from this text, and that's simply this. Our giving should be proportional. Notice with me what he says as he finishes the verse. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to do something, set it aside and store it up as he may prosper, as he may prosper. Now, brothers and sisters, let us have a little Bible lesson for just a moment. When you survey the New Testament, you'll never find anywhere a command from Jesus or any of the apostle writings to give 10% of your income. It doesn't say net or gross. You'll never find that in the New Testament. You will find Jesus say that I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, and that there are standards in the law we certainly should keep from the New Testament. But if you were to go and read the Old Testament, you'll find out that they were not only a religious thing, the church of Israel, if you will, they were also a government and a society. And if you add up all of their tithing, it would literally be be about 25% of which they give on a regular basis to the kingdom of Israel. We don't live under the kingdom of Israel. We live under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So we're not bound to this some percentage rule. But let me tell you what we are bound to. We are bound to Jesus who says, sow bountifully and you will reap bountifully. We are bound to the apostles that tell us the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We are bound to the New Testament letters where it says give sacrificially and give plentifully that each may have their need met in Acts chapter 2. We are called to give and far be it for us that an Old Testament person under the law outgive a New Testament person under grace. Far be it that we let some religious rule of percentages think that we've done it. And you want to know why we shouldn't be so legalistic? Let me tell you why. Because for some, 10% is really hard on the poor and the poverty stricken. And for some, 10% is off the hook because they're rich enough to give more, but they think they've done enough and they mark a box. And both of those things are sinful. We are to give out of a joyful heart. And so what does it mean to give proportionally? Here's simply what it means. If you get a raise tomorrow, do you think first about what you'll do for the kingdom or about what the next thing you'll buy? 
If you, if you stumble into money tomorrow, does your heart immediately leap to that thing in your Amazon cart or to the kingdom of God? When your lifestyle grows, has your giving grown? Brothers and sisters, I would stand before you and say this, that if I am tithing the same amount today and in 20 years, I'm in disobedience. Because I imagine over the next 20 years, I will make more money, hopefully here. I will, I will ma- man, I didn't get no amens out of that. <laughs> Woo, tough day, tough day. Um, but but, but, but I, I will make more, so, so my giving should grow. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not look at some legalistic rule and think we've marked a box. Let us look at a Christ who bled for us and say, you, you know the question you should ask? It's not how much should I give, it's Lord, what can I live without? How, how much more can I give, Lord? How, how much more? In fact, in, in Colossians 2, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians uh, 2, uh, 9 through 7, he writes these words. He says, each of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We should give joyfully, bountifully. Why? Because God has given to us and we need to fight idolatry. We need to fight covetousness. If we're not careful, we will constantly want to buy the next thing. And that won't impact the kingdom. Let me close. I know I've thrown some stats at you this morning because I wanted to give you a whole picture of what it looks like in the local church around the world. But, but let me just, let's go back to this idea of 10%. Recently, a study was written by a survey group that said if, if every professing Christian in the world gave 10%, here's how much money we would generate. We would generate $165 billion more dollars than we currently generate in church giving. So if, if every professing Christian around the world gave 10%, if that's, if that's what they gave on average, then we would have $165 billion more dollars in the kingdom work of God. Now, what can we do with that money? Just listen to what this survey went on to say. I'll give it to you on the screen. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation problems. $1 billion could fully fund overseas mission work. And that would still leave $100 to $110 billion left over. Now, I realize when we throw around big numbers like that, none of us understand it. That that's not in our ballpark. But, but here's, what, here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 16 tells me that I need to understand. Corey, you need to give regularly as a witness to the gospel that's changed your life and as the king who's over you. And you need to give purposely and sacrificially and proportionally. And you need to give to the local church because you're declaring you're a part of the body of Christ. That's what it looks like. So let me ask you a question. If you're here this morning and you're a member of Elkdale Baptist Church, then I am first and foremost speaking to you. How does your unity look? Are you, are you part of the kingdom here? Are you sharing in the work? Are you giving proportionally? Are you giving regularly? Are you giving in an accountable way through the local church? Are you helping the kingdom? Is it your first priority because I believe that the way we start fighting the love of money is we start giving it away. And the most accountable way to give it away is through the local church that's kingdom-minded. Let me ask you a second question. If you're here this morning, you're not a member of Elkdale, what church are you in? Where are you faithfully giving? There are a lot of many good things you can give your money to, but the church is what the New Testament declares that we must give to first. So how are you doing in your church? 
How are you strengthening their work and their way? Are you growing in your giving? Would you bow your heads with me this morning, Father? Over two Sundays, we've looked at money. Uh, and now, Lord, it is, it is time for us to sit and allow your Spirit, the great physician, to work through us and, and show us where we lack. And so, Father, I pray right now, I pray for the ones sitting in the room that at this moment just feels guilty. Lord, I pray that that godly guilt would turn to confession and obedience. That, Father, temporary guilt solves nothing. But confession and obedience is what you desire. And so, Lord, I pray for the one who, who feels the weight of this idea that they're, they're just out of control in their spending, they're out of control in their lifestyle, they're, they're swimming in debt, and, and giving through the local church is so far off of their radar that, Father, they've, they've lost their way. Lord, I pray that right now, as, as they feel this swell of guilt, that you'd remind them that you forgive sinners, that you desire for them to walk the right way, that guilt goes away in light of confessing to you. And so, Lord, I pray right now they would confess their sin and, and you would begin to show them how they can be obedient. Father, I pray for the visitor here this morning, for the one who's, who's a member of another church and they're, they're faithfully in that church, they love that church, they're going to go back there. Lord, I pray you'd give them a zeal to give to their church. Lord, I pray for the one who's not tied to a church, who's not members, who's not joined in the accountability. Lord, that they would feel the conviction to find a church and join a church and give faithfully to the kingdom work. Lord, I pray more than anything that every single person in this room would come to know Jesus Christ and carry the title of saint. We begin... In chapter 16, with the saints. And so, brother or sister, I ask you this morning, forget your wallet. Do you know Jesus? Are you saved by Jesus? You won't be saved because of your wallet. You won't be saved because of your church attendance. You won't be saved because you were dunked in some water. You'll be saved because you've come to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? If he were to write this letter to you and say to the saints of Elkdale, would you be included? Oh, brother, sister, I believe God wants to get a hold of your wallet, but it starts by grabbing your heart. And so even now, I offer you this opportunity. Come to Jesus. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and, and I offer it. Maybe you need to come and pray with your husband or your wife about your finances. Maybe you need to come pray about how you're going to give or, or the opportunities in front of you. Maybe you want to come grab me by the hand and say, Pastor, I need Jesus. I need to be saved. My life is upside down, and, and far down my list is money. I need Jesus. It's so simple. The Bible says in Romans... Chapter 10, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ came and died and was buried and rose from the grave according to the Scriptures, we'll be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, shall be saved. He's waiting. Father, I pray now, as we respond to you, that you would be honored. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? You need to come and pray.
come grab me by the hand. Now's the time. 